Nobody ever said participatory democracy would be easy, right? Like, we don't do it because it's easy. We do it because it's the right thing to do. Hello. So we're back with the Kennedy School Review podcast. My name is Prachi, and I'm so excited uh, to have two of our own team members here today ready to talk about uh, all things Iowa caucus as we gear up for Super Tuesday. So we're going to take this time just to chat about what happened in Iowa um, and discuss what the role of technology could and should have been um, or even should be moving forward. So um, I'd love to introduce my teammates. They both found their ways to Iowa uh, independently, and it's pretty cool. So, Nadella, let's start with you. How, how did you make it to Iowa? Hi. So, I went to Iowa as part of a group called D3P, Defending Digital Democracy. It's a team here at the Kennedy School, actually run by Maria, an alum, and it's basically a bipartisan cybersecurity tabletop exercise um, or simulation that we run with different states to make sure that they are prepared for all things cybersecurity and um, election related. And Andrea, what about you? Yeah, um, I'm originally from Costa Rica. So coming from abroad, I had never understood the difference between a caucus and a primary and why different states held their elections in different days and how all the process worked. So when one of my classmates, Lucy Montgomery, organized the Iowa Trek, I jumped at it as soon as I knew it existed because we went there last January, which was a month off from the the caucuses. And we actually got to volunteer in different campaigns and we got to see one of the candidates speak in live. So it was a really interesting coming from a different country with a different system to see how it all works. And you were right there in the thick of it. What a great experience. So I think actually starting with what a caucus is, is always a good, good place to return to, just because I know for myself, I have to relearn given all these different rules and um, regulations around these caucuses. So uh, let's start there. What is the process of a caucus and what was it in Iowa? Yeah, so it's, really complicated and it differs between parties, Republican and Democrat. So I'll describe the Democratic version since that's what we're seeing this year more. And basically you meet somewhere. So we went to a high school gym in Iowa. You have designated precinct captains. So people who are running these caucuses and they stand somewhere in a room with signs with whoever they are looking to elect. Um, And it has specific presidential candidates groups. So all of these groups gather together. Around six, individuals start to sign in. They give them a preference card, which is new. And they can designate their initial preference of who they think they would like to elect a delegate for. Um, But it also helps to keep track of the number of people attending, which is really important as we move forward. Then people start to congregate around their first choice candidate. You have an initial vote to figure out what the viability threshold is for people who have to meet the 15% threshold in that group. And then people in other groups who might not meet that initial 15% threshold have to move to another group. So if you were in um, Bernie Sanders' campaign and you didn't meet the 15% threshold, you would have to go to Klobuchar or Buttigieg or Warren or any of the other candidates on the field. Um, 
And you do that three times until you have your delegates picked. And if you were part of a group that isn't viable, are you required to move to one of the viable groups or can you just step out of the caucus? They don't really like people to step out of the caucus because the number of heads that initially was counted in the beginning is the same moving forward. And so people are pretty much locked in. And how do those people get to be there in the first place? It's just everyone in their community. So instead of voting like you would, you would go into a ballot box and kind of tick off the people or the person that you'd like to elect. Uh, people in the community have to come in and participate this way. So it's just a different way of voicing your vote. So whoever wants to be a part of the caucus can be. Yep. Wow. Really cool. I imagine that makes forecasting how to gather information pretty challenging if you don't know exactly how many people are going to show up. For sure. I mean, we didn't see it, but um, some caucuses only had like five people show up in a specific precinct. And so when people say your voice doesn't matter, <laughs> I thought it, it shows that it really does because those are the five people picking maybe one delegate from the one of 1,600 precincts in Iowa. Wow. And what do you guys think of having this be a public vote, because something that I found really interesting from a caucus to a primary is that a primary, nobody knows if I go and vote who I voted for versus this caucus system where I'm publicly stating who I'm voting for. Do you think that that changes the results between people voting publicly or privately? Or what are your thoughts on this? I <laughs> All the tough questions for Nadella. <laughs> I think that uh, what makes caucuses really great is that people are able to connect the principles and the policies to local communities. And so I was helping answer a phone at one of at, at some point and one of the parents called and said, hey, my daughter wants to learn a little bit more about how caucuses work, about the policies that are on the table about the presidential election, can I bring her in to watch? And I thought that was a really great moment just to see, get students and get youth involved to see how democracy really works. So from that perspective, it's really enlightening and it's a teachable moment for people who were hoping participate in our democracy and our electoral processes in the future. Um, but on the other hand, some people say that it's not inclusive enough because you have to be there by seven. I mean, doors lock at a certain time. So if you are not able to get involved or if you're in a working class family, it can be difficult. Right. And so there's this tension between, you know, inclusivity and efficiency, I think, brings out a lot of what is so challenging about planning technology around these caucuses, where part of what is like so incredible about it is that nobody ever said participatory democracy would be easy, right? Like we don't yeah. do it because it's easy. We do it because it's the right thing to do. And yet, you know, at the end of the day, votes need to be tallied. And there needs to be a winner. And so I, I'm wondering if like some of the, like how did this all feed in to the app failure? The the, the big app failure. Like, <laughs> let's sort of transition and talking about that. What happened there? Yeah, so I, I can talk a little bit about what I saw and then I, I'd love to hear what Andrea saw as well. I think there were four things that happened. One was that the app itself failed. The IDP said it was only- Who's the IDP? The um, Iowa Democratic Party. Great, great. They mm -hmm. are, thank you for the reminder, they were running this. And so they mentioned that it was only reporting partial data, but 
a lot of what we also heard in addition to that is that people had trouble using it, like things like you're unable to log in, they were being kicked out, they had Wi-Fi issues in certain places. Um, and that sort of leads into the second problem was that there was no real rollout plan and no training. So imagine if you are a precinct leader or a caucus leader and you are trying to obtain the app so that you know how to direct people to use it. If you don't have clear instructions on how to do that, it can be difficult. I mean, Shadow, the company that built this, didn't actually add it, put the app into Apple or Google's app store. So people had to download Mm -hmm. it on the side, which is difficult even for people who use technology on a daily basis. And so it's a complicated process. I think the third thing was the lack of testing. And so they had two to three months to put this together. Microsoft had an app that was used in 2016, and they took almost a year. They took two to three months just to understand the process. Right. Um, And they did a bunch of user research, and they thought through, how do we roll this out? How do we train people? I mean, so why did the Iowa Democratic Party do this? They had something that was working well in 2016, it seemed like. And now, like, why recreate the wheel? Yeah, I think... um, One of the reasons was because the DNC had said that they didn't want to use technology um, to have virtual caucus voting after 2016. 2016 was actually a huge success, but I think as a committee, they'd made that decision. And the second reason was just that the lack of money, I think, that was put into this. I think Microsoft was paid almost 10 times more than Shadow was paid when they wanted to embark on this. And so when you're thinking about funding, sometimes you get what you pay for. And I also don't think tech companies necessarily wanted to be involved in politics. Interesting. Something that I found interesting was what the lack of results meant and how it was interpreted. Because one of the articles that I was reading was criticizing that as long as the tally of the results is like accurate, then it doesn't matter if it takes a lot of time to reach those results. But since like all the networks and all the campaigns were waiting to receive results on that, the fact that it took longer led a lot of people to not say conspiracy theories, but say that this was like um, the opposite of transparency for the system and and taking uh, jumping to conclusions, which actually ended up backfiring for the transparency part. So I felt it was really interesting that this article was calling for responsibility from the media as to how they portrayed the fact that the results weren't published. There is definitely a tension between misinformation that was floating around, maybe um, lack of transparency in the process, even between the Iowa, Iowa Democratic Party and the media, and then just transparency within the app. The media has its job and its role, and it's there to report what's going on. Um, And so I think from their standpoint, it might have been hard to not understand this new app, not understand what it was doing until after the fact. So uh, there's definitely an underlying tension. We need the media to be able to explain to voters what's happening, but also you need the time for the party to reassess and come up with another strategy when you have failures like these. Right. And I just wonder, you know, what does this mean when tech, the whole purpose of using tech is in the spirit of transparency and when it's not rolled out in a way that is conducive to that transparency, are we as a nation just going to have a lowered appetite for, for 
future tech involvement in such things. And I think it brings up really moral questions too. Like not all tech is, is right. You know, like there's some well-planned tech that works and this is clearly an example of tech that doesn't. So I'm just wondering what you two think about this. Like, do you think like this means we, yeah, like, you know, we keep going because we focus on how well 2016 went when it was planned out properly? Or do we take 2020 in a more risk averse way? And we say, no, this is the cost of it when it doesn't go right. Okay, in my case, I, I'm not that technologically savvy. Like I just learned that you can download an app, not from the app store. <laughs> I think that's news for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> and you should be suspicious of that. App, probably. <laughs> so um, I'm not sure I'm going to answer your specific question. But the way I'm seeing tech at a public policy school is that it's something that I cannot turn my back on. Yes. Like, it mm-hmm. is coming. So yep. what and we should use it to facilitate the process rather than obscuring it. So how do we use tech to the benefit of the policies that what we want to do or the um, management things that we want to achieve versus fighting it? Because I don't think we, w- we will win that fight, so to say. Like we just have to go, we just have to go along with it, but we have to do just better planning around making sure it doesn't yeah, and overwhelm al- us. And also in this specific case, it seemed that the people that were going to use the app weren't properly trained. So if I would have been a precinct captain and I wouldn't have been properly trained, I would still be downloading the app, like searching where I'm supposed to download (laughs) it. They shouldn't assume that people know how to do this. A lot of young people are involved in the whole caucus process from what I understood, but still they they might not know the specifics of tech. And also, I think another problem was the wireless connections or the internet connections within the caucus, where Mm. buildings where they were being held. So that was also Mm -hmm. a thing that... You can have the best app, but if you cannot connect to the web or like wh- whatever you need to connect to, it, it doesn't work. Yeah, Andrea, what you're saying almost has me wondering, you know, maybe it's a false dichotomy we're drawing between inclusivity and efficiency. Like maybe in order to be the most efficient, you must be inclusive of the needs of the people on the ground who are going to be using the technology that you're eventually creating. Because I mean, at the end of the day, it's human work. Like, yeah, you have people inputting numbers into an app and yes, those numbers are sent quicker and the tallies ideally should happen quicker. But at the end of the day, if you're not teaching people how to use it, if you're not engaging with people, if you're not understanding their methodologies for arriving at those numbers, then, I mean, bye-bye efficiency, clearly. Yeah, I mean, so I'm taking a class now on policy design and delivery, and we talk a lot in our classes about the difference between policy analysis and then the implementation. And so often, so I worked in product operations first before moving into data and analytics. And on the operation side, it can be difficult to understand the intent behind the policy. And so I think at that point, you realize that implementation really matters. And even though we like tech, we have to acknowledge that tech is not going to solve our problems actually, it might exacerbate the problems that might already exist within the process. And so you need to make sure that there's fail-safe procedures in place when you are rolling out these new policies. I mean, the Iowa caucus had new rules this time and new ways of transmitting the information, and they were trying to be a lot more transparent, like Andrea said. But in order to do that, you need to really understand how you plan to roll that out. And and you also have to know that, you know, how do you intake user feedback and triaging and 
and plan for volume increases, I think some of those things were maybe not anticipated to the level or degree that they should have been. And so when we're thinking about using tech and democratic processes, we really need to remember that that gap between implementation and policy needs to be a little bit smaller. And if if possible, not there at all, you need to make sure that there's a link. Right, like the people designing the policy are the ones also responsible for its rollout. Yeah, in an like ideal that. world, right? Absolutely. So, Najilla, we were talking offline about the way that you also had some uh, exposure to Republican Party implementation of these apps. And I thought some of the things you said were really fascinating. Could you uh, enlighten us on what some of those differences were? Yeah. So as part of D3P, we run the simulation with both parties. And so it was interesting to see the different ways in which they approached the same problem or the same exercises that we threw at them. And so on the Republican side, we saw that it was a bit more hierarchical. And so the roles were very clearly defined. People knew exactly who was in charge of what. And it was very clear, even from the visual setup in the room, who was going to be playing a role in what portion of the caucus. So for example, who was responding to the media, who is tabulating results, who is in charge of, you know, making sure that things on social media are accurate information, whereas maybe on the Democratic side, they wanted to involve lots of people in different processes in the different stages. And so you might have a team that's working on one issue area, and then you might have people walking around to different groups to make sure that they had all the information that they needed. And so there isn't one right way. It was just interesting to see how that played out in terms of the caucus process on the night of. And so I think that that might have had something to do with what might have happened on caucus night, but we don't know because <laughs> we're still looking back at it and hindsight's always twenty twenty. Right. We don't have the counterfactual. Another thing that I think is important is what actually happened in regards to tech on caucus night, because a lot of people were worried about potential hacking or interference, but this doesn't seem to be what happened. It seemed to be more of organizational failures and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And what you guys do in D3P is more of protecting the integrity and like the non-interference aspects of it. Can you speak a little bit to that? Because some people may still be uh, worried, like mixing what exactly, exactly happened. Yeah, I think when something happens and you have time to mull over different conspiracy theories or what might have happened, it's easy to, you know, follow a trail down. I think of like when I'm maybe texting an ex and I see the three dots and I don't know what's happening. I think of these stories in my head. And so I think maybe that was part of what was happening. People were maybe anticipating the worst based off of what had happened in the 2016 elections. Um, but what we learned in the simulations is that it's just really important to be prepared for anything that might come up. And even things like how do people log on to the app? Those are the types of questions that I think that maybe they were getting, how do you handle volume, how do you triage, all of those things, I think it really validated the work that the team is doing because those issues really do come up. And it might seem small, but when you're in the heat of the moment, it, it can be so frazzling, especially on a national stage. You want to maintain your first in 
nation status and you want to make sure that you're leading the charge on implementing tech the right way. Totally. And which brings us back to the the Kennedy School <laughs> and the fact um, that you had access to all this, Nigella, through this D3P program. Can you speak more to, about, you know, how the Kennedy School is building tech literacy? You know, ideally to, to make sure that future policymakers, future decision makers are well-versed into what implementation, ethical implementation, appropriate implementation, successful implementation should look like. Yeah, and I can just give one example. And I know that our, our listeners and you guys have probably seen this too. They're offering more tech classes. The Shorenstein Center is also talking more about misinformation and, and how you use technology in current day politics. Um, they brought in Kathy Pham, who you know has extensive research doing tech policy work, uh, both on the Hill and in the private sector. So I think just bringing in practitioners has been really helpful for students to see what the tension areas are and what careers in both tech and policy look like. Something that I really like about this new uh, momentum in the Kennedy School is that the tech classes are, part of them are oriented towards more tech-focused students, but also a big part of them are oriented towards students that may not be tech knowledgeable enough or may not want to go to tech-specific jobs, but still like being involved in policymaking necessitates these students to be somewhat aware of what's going on in the tech. Mm-hmm. So I think they've struck a good balance between the different types of students that come here and what are their, what their needs are. I think that's such a great point. You don't have to be a software engineer or a coder to be involved in tech. I think if you understand the principles and you understand, you know, the landscape and the industry, it's really a great way to get yourself immersed in tech. And we need more policymakers in tech and we need more tech practitioners in policy. Um, it's really about decreasing that gap. Something that I really liked, um, it's an anecdote, but before coming here, they David Eaves did a Python boot camp <laughs> for new students, and I, I had never done Python before, so I enrolled in the class, and I had never understood this thing of binary code and ones and zeros, and I'm like, how can you translate everything to ones and zeros? Like, I cannot uh, understand this. And part of the Python camp was to learn how to translate numbers into binary code. And I learned how to translate my age into binary code. So I was like <laughs> texting my husband, like, okay, what's your age? Well, I mean, I know his age, but <laughs> <laughs> my mother, date of birth, I'm going to translate your age into binary code. And I was like really hyped up that I was able to get this knowledge, even though I'm never going to be a Python coder. So it was a, it was a really nice opportunity as a uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I'd love to see more such data offerings as well. Like I think hand in hand with tech literacy goes data literacy. And so I know I've personally sought out a lot more classes um, at the college um, in order to build um, up my own data toolkit. And I know nobody's, you know, necessarily going to hire me for this purpose. But I think we have too many people in decision making uh, roles with a ton of authority and power who don't necessarily know the nitty gritty binary code, like what's happening at the level <laughs> of the binary code, you know? And I think that leads to a lot of these sort of failures of, of, of rollout and implementation. Like we need people who understand what's going on to be able to, tra- you know, translate all of that into like what it means for a precinct worker who's just trying to do their part in democracy, you know? So 
so I'm hopeful. I think I'm, I'm, I'm definitely along with both of you. I'm hopeful about the Kennedy school reorienting itself in this way, but also left like definitely want to see more data literacy. Also definitely want to see more offerings, talks, courses, professors who have this as their research areas on, on, you know, what the dark side of this is too, and what we have to be afraid of and what, what data protection and privacy looks like in this age, particularly as we start to use it for uh, undergirding basic tenets of our democracy. So, well, thanks for the conversation, friends. This is fun as always. Tune in next time to the Kennedy School Review Podcast. I'm Prachi. I'm Najella. And Andrea. Take care.